You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. All right, so today's, um, this afternoon's reading is Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22, and we're going to read until the end of chapter 17. So it's a long passage, so I have a challenge for all the children. Um, the Israelites do a lot of grumbling in this passage, and I want you to count how many times they grumble. So I want you to listen out for the word grumble, grumbling, grumbled, grumbles, all the different versions. And I want you to be able to tell me at the end how many times they said that. And a hint is you'll only need your two hands. You don't need to take your shoes and socks off to be able to count. You only need your two hands to count how many times the Israelites grumble. So like I said, we're doing chapter 15, starting at verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they travelled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs, and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, "'If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt,' There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said. You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. 
That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much and some little. When they measured it by the omer, the one who had gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today it is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come, so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is one-tenth of an ephah. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. 
Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Uh, my name's Adam and I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. Uh, we're going to work through this long passage. Uh, we're going to pray in a sec. Have your phones open to the welcome page. You'll see the outline there in the passage. You can follow along. But let's now talk to God and ask him to be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We pray that you would speak to us through it. Help us to see that these are not just ancient stories of just a bit of historical interest, but they are living stories that are relevant for us today. Amen. Who doesn't love a good grumble? Now, of course, there are bad grumbles, right? When, when someone grumbles and says that you've chosen the wrong movie to go watch together or you picked the wrong restaurant for everyone to eat at. But... You know, there are good grumbles, and they are so good. Uh, like when we grumble about the queue at the supermarket, or we grumble when they change our flavour, the flavour of our favourite chips, or COVID-19. Lots to grumble about there. Even the word grumble is fun to say, isn't it? Why don't you all say it with me? Say grumble. Grumble. Yeah, you kind of get that rumbly noise in your chest, and, and that's what grumbles are, aren't they? That's kind of little rumbles that start deep inside and they build up and up and they come out of our mouths as complaints. And we rumble and we mumble and we murmur against people and it just feels so good. But the problem is, grumbling isn't actually good for us. In fact, it's dangerous because if we do grumble too much, eventually all that will be left of us is the grumble. Uh, I'm sure you all know at least one grumpy person who never has anything positive to say. They are pretty much just a living, walking grumble. They are no fun to be around. And grumbling feeds our negativity, our dissatisfaction, our sense of entitlement. And ultimately, grumbling separates us from God because 
we eventually point to him as the ultimate cause of our grumbles, because he's the one who's in control of the world. Well, thankfully, God has a cure for grumblers like you and I. And we learn about it in Exodus 15, verse 22, right through the end of chapter 17. The Israelites do a lot of grumbling there, and we see how God sought to help them. So, let's get started. You'll see the next uh, point in our outline says, The Lord calls the grumbling Israelites to trust in Him. So, here in chapter 15, uh, God has just rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Earlier, God had raised Moses up and appeared to him in the burning bush at Mount Sinai and said to Moses the sign that he would bring the people back, that God had done it, would be that he'd bring all the Israelites back to Mount Sinai and they would worship God there. Uh, Through the ten plagues of judgment upon Egypt, God rescued them. And then he secured that rescue by parting the Red Sea and the Israelites passed through it so they could get away from Pharaoh's armies that were chasing them. So then they have a bit of a a party, and then they set out for Mount Sinai. And first they have to journey through the desert of Shur. Before long, though, they're in trouble, because they can't find any water to drink. So have a look at verses 23 and 24 to see what happened. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? So do you see how they responded? They grumbled. They murmured and complained against Moses. You know, what's the point of water if we can't even drink it? And so Moses prays to the Lord, who shows him a piece of wood. And then Moses picks up the wood, throws it in the water, and the water becomes drinkable. So let's not bother trying to find a scientific explanation for this. It's meant to be a miracle. That's the point. Uh, The God who could use Moses to make the Nile water undrinkable in the first plague, that same God can use Moses to make undrinkable water now drinkable. And so this leads God to call the Israelites to trust him by setting out a, a ruling and instruction for them. Have a look at verse 26. We learn God's going to test them. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. God is testing them and is seeing if they will obey him. It's not about earning their redemption or their salvation. That's already happened. After all, he is called the Lord your God. And and remember, just a bit of an Old Testament reminder here, whenever we see the word Lord in capitals, that's because in the original Hebrew, that's God's personal name, his covenant name, but the Jews didn't want to misspeak the Lord's name, so they'd say Lord instead of his actual name he'd revealed. And we kind of continue that tradition now by putting Lord in our English Bibles in capitals. So anyway, we've got the Lord their God. Uh, He's going to test the Israelites to see if they'll acknowledge that they're in a relationship with him, acknowledge his love and his power, or if they're going to be like the Egyptians who stubbornly opposed God and suffered the consequences. And then almost as if to show that he's serious about this and that he can deliver, he takes them to this place called Elim, which is an oasis in the desert. 
in verse 27, you can see that there are 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Well, this is a sign from God that he can care for them and deliver them if they would just trust in him. And it also shows that he knows them and he knows their needs. After all, there are 12 springs of water for the 12 tribes of Israel. Also, 70 palms. We know in the Bible, numbers are important. Seven is the number of God. Ten is the number of wholeness or completeness. God is going to wholly provide for them. And do you remember that when the Israelites entered Egypt all those centuries ago, they were just one family of 70 people. Here is God showing that he knows their history, he's going to look after them in their present, and he'll get them to their future. They can trust God. And so that brings us to the end of chapter 15. You're doing well. Only two more chapters to go. Uh, What follows in chapter 16 and 17 are a series of situations where God calls the Israelites to trust in him rather than grumbling. So let's move to our next main point in our outline. The Lord provides the grumbling Israelites with their daily food. In verse 1, we see that they leave the oasis of Elim and head into the desert of Sin. It's a great name. Uh, they have to cross this so that they can get uh, across the desert to the mountain of Sinai. That's their destination. And so this progress in their journey should have given the Israelites hope. But instead, they grumble. Have a look at verses 2 and 3 of Exodus 16. In the desert... The whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out in the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now in one sense, surely we can get where they're coming from. There's like more than a million people here. It's been a month since they left Egypt and they're probably wondering where's the food and water going to come from? But can you also see that they're being overly dramatic about this? I mean, they wish that God had just killed them in Egypt because surely that would be easier than have to pack everything up and travel out into the desert. What a pain that is. We should have just died. And then they say, they remember how they used to sit around pots of meat and they could eat all that they wanted. I mean, really? Like, did Pharaoh give the the Israelites a, a meat buffet? They were slaves after all. What are they talking about? And they genuinely believe that God has gone to all of this trouble, all of these amazing miracles, just to bring them out into the wilderness so they can starve. Well, isn't this a confronting example of what grumbling looks like? See, rather than asking questions, rather than trying to understand their situation, they make these grand statements, they exaggerate, and they accuse God of being evil. Isn't that often true of our grumbling? You know, my housemate never cleans up after himself. Not like the last one. They were perfect, could never do anything wrong. But this one wants to drown me in dirty clothes and pizza boxes. They want to kill me. You see, when we grumble, we tend to exaggerate, don't we? We paint the worst possible picture and we assume that people are deliberately out to get us. Yet, in response to Israel's grumbling... God shows grace, undeserved mercy and favour. I mean, yes, in verse 4 he says he's going to test them 
to see if they'll follow his instructions. But the first part of verse 4 says that he will rain down bread from heaven. And have a look at verse 8. Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. And that shows another common feature of our grumbling. See, when we complain about our circumstances, often we're complaining against God. Moses and Aaron say, who are you to complain against us? We're not in control of the world. You're actually complaining against God. Yet God is still gracious because he provides quail and manna for the Israelites. We don't actually read much about the birds in this chapter because the emphasis is not on the meat but on the bread. So have a look at verses 13, 14 and 15 with me. That evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Let's jump down to verse 31. There's some more information there. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Now, there's a bit of a joke here in the naming of the bread, calling it manna, because that word sounds a bit like the Hebrew word what. And so they say, what is it? And so they have the bright idea of calling it what bread. A bit like we might say, what manner of bread is this? Let's call it manna. Oh, nobody laughed. I thought that was a great joke. So we don't actually know what manna was made of. Uh, There's kind of these different theories uh, to do with kind of plants and fungi and insects and trees, and I I can go into all the details later if you like, but whatever sort of natural phenomenon may have been linked to it, the point is that God provided this food in his timing and in sufficient amount for the Israelites to eat. God then gives instructions to the Israelites concerning this manna, And the first is that they're only to gather enough for each day. Uh, Some of the people try to stock up and keep it until the next day, but what do they find in the morning? Maggot bread, stinky maggot bread. Uh, The second instruction is that on the sixth day, they meant to gather double so that they can rest on the seventh day from having to work. The extra that they collected on that day did actually last until tomorrow, and it wasn't maggoty bread. But on the seventh day, some people still decide to go out and just look, just in case there's some manna that they can get that day. But guess what? There's nothing there. So their lack of obedience naturally angered the Lord. So can you see that God is graciously providing for the Israelites, yet they still insist on testing him, of disobeying him. They won't trust him. They're being told they need to rely on God for their daily food and he will give them exactly what they need each day to survive. And they're also to rely on God for their weekly rest. He will give them enough food so they can have a whole day of rest once a week without needing to leave the camp to work for food. And a side note, just out of interest, this is the first time in the Bible we read about the Sabbath 
It even comes before the famous Sabbath command in the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. And so I think this shows that this is a, that the day of rest is not a matter of law, but a gracious provision from God, something built into creation, that rhythm of work and rest. So, what we see with the manna is that the Lord is in control, and so there's no need to grumble. He will look after the Israelites. To remind the people of his miraculous provision, God commands Moses to set up a testimony or memorial. Have a look at verse 33. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. So this jar was a reminder to any Israelites who were born during the time of wandering in the desert, and also for any of those who were born later in the Promised Land, a reminder that God had watched over their ancestors and so would watch over them as well. Can you see how God is inviting the Israelites to trust in him and his gracious provision? That's the cure for their grumbling. So, let's move to another set of examples. And this is our next main point. The Lord provides the grumbling Israelites with water and victory. So that's two chapters down. We're now up to chapter 17 of Exodus. You're doing well. Keep it up. Uh, The Israelites, they arrive at a place called Rephidim and find that there's no water to drink. So what do they do? Of course, they grumble, don't they? It seems that the Israelites are failing their test from God. In fact, Moses says in verse 2 that they are putting the Lord to the test. Moses prays to the Lord and again, God shows himself to be gracious towards these grumblers. Have a look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 17. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take uh, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. What's another miraculous provision by God? I mean, perhaps by now the Israelites did believe that if there was undrinkable water, God could make it drinkable, but they didn't believe that God could just make water come out of nowhere. But God shows that he can be trusted. And to make it clear that it's God at work and not Moses, he tells his servant to use the staff with which he had struck the Nile. See again that the God who had power over water in Egypt also has power over water in the wilderness. And this staff, the the staff of God, is the hero of the next story as well. Uh, Do you see in verse 8 that the Amalekites attack the Israelites while they're at Rephidim? And Moses tells Joshua to gather some men and Moses is going to go up onto a hill and he's going to hold up the staff of God in his hands. And so as long as Moses holds the staff up, then the Israelites are able to overcome the Amalekites. But as soon as the staff comes down again, then the Amalekites start to win against the Israelites. And so all of this is to show that it's God who provides the victory. It's the staff of God. And so no matter how strong the Israelites are, no matter how wonderful their military tactics might be, it's the Lord who defeats their enemies. 
So these two events, the, the rock with water and the battle, they're also memorialised. Uh, for the rock, the, the place where the Israelites grumbled is called Massah, meaning test, and Meribah, meaning quarrel. And in verse 14, God tells, tells Moses to record the events of their victory in a special scroll and to make sure that Joshua reads it because one day Joshua will lead the people. And so again, God is wanting not just the Israelites in that time to know he can be trusted, but also future generations to know that. And he's giving them evidence that they ought not to grumble and put him to the test. So, that's an overview of Exodus 15, 22, right through the end of chapter 17. And so I hope you can see that the clear message is how trust in the gracious God is the cure for our grumbling. Let me say that again. Trust in the gracious God is the cure for our grumbling. And so we can also see from this long passage that grumbling is dangerous for Christians. So we're going to look at that for a little bit now, and then we're going to look at how we as Christians can have our grumbling cured by trusting in God's provision. So first of all, the first danger of grumbling is that it breeds more grumbling. You know, grumbling spreads through the Israelites like a virus. It's actually more contagious than COVID. Think about it, uh, Gerald complains to you that he was late for church today because the traffic was terrible and when he got out to the road, there were no parks, no car parks left in the street. He had to park blocks away. Now, there are two things you could do. Either you agree with Gerald and you grumble along with him, or you think Gerald's being unreasonable, so you go find Geraldine and you grumble to her about how unreasonable Gerald is and maybe he just needs to leave for church earlier and if there's lots of, peop- lots of cars already out in the street, it's because lots of people coming to church. Isn't that what we want? You see how grumbling breeds more grumbling and justifies us grumbling about grumblers and we join them. Grumbling is dangerous. It's also dangerous because it puts God to the test. No matter how many times God graciously provided for the Israelites, the next time they were in need, they started murmuring against him again. They just didn't believe he would look after them. Well, we're like this too. You see, our grumbling implies that we know better than God about how things should be. You know, we think he lacks the power or the love or the wisdom to run the world properly. And we we often don't realise that we are grumbling against God. We complain about our parents or our teachers or our government or our church leaders, not realising that God ultimately is the one who is in charge and so our problem is with him. And so this demonstrates a lack of trust in God. The third danger is that grumbling distorts our view of this life. You see, much like the Israelites, we've been set free from slavery, haven't we? Not slavery to Pharaoh, but slavery to sin and death and the devil. And we find ourselves on a journey to the promised land of heaven. And then we get surprised that life in the wilderness in between is difficult. And so we grumble. You see, grumbling expects to have heaven now, and we don't trust that God will get us there in his own time. 
grumbling longs for the good old days when we could just sin and not worry about it. You know, my life was so much better before I became a Christian. And grumbling denies the fact that God gives us what we need each day to get through each day. You see, it distorts our view of life and what we should expect, and it only breeds more grumbling. Well, the final danger of grumbling is that it is the enemy of gratitude. Hopefully that's pretty simple. We should be grateful to God for what he has done for us, what he is doing for us, and when tough times come, we should be grateful that those tough times won't last. But if we grumble, gratitude becomes harder and harder. So I hope you can see then that grumbling is more than just complaining. There may actually be good times for us to raise complaints when we have to express our concerns, raise issues with people. But see, grumbling is when we have complaints and we express them in a way backed by bad attitudes. You know, there's bitterness or envy or ingratitude or mistrust or spite that sits in our heart. And these poisonous attitudes, they grow and they rumble inside. And if we don't deal with them, they will grow and grow until they come out as a grumbling complaint. And so what can we do? How can we cure our grumbles? Well, this leads us to our final point, where we'll see that the Lord graciously provides for Christians to cure our grumbling. First of all, God has given us Jesus. And you might wonder, well, how are we going to connect Jesus to this passage in Exodus? Well, the New Testament does it for us. Very exciting. Uh, The first stop is John chapter 6. A very long, amazing, weird, complex passage. You can look at it later. I'm just going to give you a summary now. We all know the story. Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then they follow him because they want more bread. They want to know how can they stop working for a living, working for their food. Will Jesus give them all the bread they need? And Jesus says, look, the work you need to do is to believe in the one he has sent. And so with bread still on their mind, they say, what sign are you going to give us? Because God gave our ancestors manna in the wilderness. And so Jesus replies by saying that he is the true bread who has come down from heaven and whoever believes in Jesus will never go hungry or thirsty. And the crowd are not impressed. They're like, this guy's come from heaven like he's Jesus, the son of Joseph. In the words of my son Noah, they say, he do be tripping though. And just like the Israelites in the wilderness, John says, listen to this, John says they began to grumble, the exact same word. So then Jesus pushes them a bit harder and he says, look guys, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will never have eternal life. Now the people take this quite literally, too literally. And as my daughter Charlotte would say, nah, we ain't about that life. And so they walk away from Jesus and stop following him. Now it is a very puzzling passage because it does sound like Jesus is advocating cannibalism. And that was one of the things the early Christians were charged with by those around them. But when we put it next to our passage in Exodus, we can see what's going on. You see, the Israelites, they needed physical bread to get to their physical earthly destination, the promised land. Well, we need spiritual bread so that we can get to our heavenly destination. 
And so the reference to flesh and blood is a Jewish way of referring to death because that's when they are separated. And so Jesus is speaking of his death. It will be the ultimate gift for all who will believe. You know, because of our rebellion against God, we, we deserve to stay in slavery to sin, death, and the devil. But because of Jesus' own sacrificial death, we are set free. And he promises us something much better than miraculous bread to fill our bellies. He promises us everlasting life. And all we have to do is trust in him and walk away from our slavery to sin. Here's the bread from heaven who helps us to have eternal life, gives us eternal life. There's another way that Jesus links to this passage. He is also the rock from whom flows the Spirit. And you thought John chapter 6 was trippy. This is trippy too. Uh, we're going to look at this briefly, but if you're, in part of, if you're part of a gospel community, you'll get to study this more during the week. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul speaks about the Israelites' experience in the wilderness. I'm going to read out verses 3 and 4. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Well, Paul is speaking about the manna and the water, which in one sense were spiritual food and drink, because, think about it, when they ate and drank in faith, it actually grew their faith. It was of spiritual benefit as well as physical benefit to them. Those who came to the rock in faith didn't just receive physical water, they received spiritual water from God. That's how Jesus is the spiritual rock, because he nourishes faith. Now, how does he do that? Well, it's by the Holy Spirit. And again, you may not be following me here, so let's, let's go to John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, and I'll read it out. On the last and greatest day of the festival... Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So the Spirit of God is depicted as water that flows from Christ. Paul refers to Jesus as the spiritual rock who pours forth spiritual drink to spiritually sustain people. So what I think we're meant to see here is that God provides us with the Spirit today so we can drink deeply of God's grace, be sustained in our faith and strengthened to live a life that is pleasing to God, trusting Him. You see, we grumble because we feel that God just doesn't know what we're going through, or God is just distant. But if we've trusted in God, then we know we have something better than a physical rock that pours forth physical water. We have Jesus who gives us the Spirit, and we are continually filled with Him. God is with us by His Spirit. God knows what we're going through. God knows what we need. He needs, He cares for us every day. And also, this is a key thing, the Holy Spirit transforms us. He actually gives us a new heart. He changes our minds, our attitudes, our thinking, our heart. See, we can't cure our grumbling on our own. God does that through the Spirit 
as we trust in God, as we trust in his son Jesus. Wow. Put your hand up if you think you might still be with me. Yeah, a few people. If you've got questions, come and talk to me later on. Let's, let's gather our focus back in now. Jesus cures our grumbling because he provides for our deepest spiritual needs and he guarantees a better future. And so that should lead us to have gratitude. But see, we can still be prone to grumbling because like the Israelites, we forget about the wonderful truths and we also get tired of waiting. So there are two other gracious provisions God provides for Christians, testimonies and prayer. And I promise we're almost done. Just like the Israelites, we have testimonies to remind us of the truth. We don't have place names or a jar of bread or a special war scroll, but we do have the Bible, which has lots of details, accounts of God's faithfulness to his people. We have the Lord's Supper, which reminds us of Jesus' life-giving death on the cross. And as we eat and drink in faith, we are strengthened in our faith. Our trust in God is strengthened. And we even have the testimonies of other Christians who can talk about how God has been faithful to them and helped them. That's why it's wonderful when we have our brothers and sisters become members or get baptised. They share their testimonies with us. It's great to hear about God's faithfulness in their lives. And let's not forget that every day you get out of bed is a testimony to the fact that God got you through yesterday. And finally, God grants us the gift of prayer. We can come to him in our time of need and ask for help. And that's an important part of the cure for grumbling that helps us to maintain our gratitude. See, did you notice as we work through our passage in Exodus that God did actually allow his people to be hungry and thirsty. He actually allowed them to have times of need. That was part of the test. And so what were they supposed to do? They weren't supposed to grumble. They were supposed to come to God in prayer, show their grateful reliance on him, their dependence on him. But instead they grumbled. And so I wonder, does your tendency to grumble reveal a lack of care on God's part or a lack of prayer on your part. Your God, the Lord your God, invites you to pray to him with gratitude in your heart. But do you prefer to grumble and murmur and see other people be infected with your grumbles? When you're unhappy about your life, do you moan and complain to those who have no power to actually fix your life? Or do you pray to God? When you're unhappy about our church, what do you do? Do you grumble or, well, how about this? You could come along to the monthly prayer meeting and pray with the church so the church can keep growing. That's a great idea. Put it in your diaries. Let's trust God rather than test God. Let's pray to him. And we don't just pray to God in times of need. We should pray each day. But that's what Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. You know, Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, Jesus says we should pray to God, give us today our daily bread. That sounds a bit like the lesson of the manna, doesn't it? God will provide our needs on a daily basis and we can pray and trust that God will do that. When we pray for our daily bread, we are building our trust in him and we are curing our grumbles. Well, we've made it. 
We all love a good grumble, don't we? But ultimately, grumbling is dangerous because it poisons our hearts, it infects others, and it distorts our view of God and the life he's given us. And so thankfully, God has lovingly, graciously provided the cure for our grumbling by sending his son to die for us, by sending his spirit to dwell among us, by graciously reminding us daily of his goodness and inviting us to pray to him. This is God's grace to grumblers. And I encourage you to receive it, to accept it with open arms today and find the cure for your grumbles in God's grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just as you cared for your people in the wilderness, you care for us too. You provide for our daily needs and you have secured our eternal destination through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Please help each one of us to look to Christ with gratitude so that our grumbling might be cured. Amen.